Welcome to Still Scared Talking Children's Horror, a podcast about creepy, spooky and disturbing children's books, films and TV. I'm Ren Wednesday, my co-host is Adam Wybray, and this time we're chatting about The Garden of Darkness by Gillian Murray Kendall from 2014. A full transcript of this episode will be available, so check the show notes for that. Enjoy! evening adam uh welcome to our podcast about the garden of darkness by Gillian murray kendall uh which is our first outing into post-apocalyptic uh fiction on this podcast um with the exception of the chrysalids but that's more post post apocalypse <laughs> um <laughs> This is immediate, immediately post-apocalypse. Everyone's dead. Small band of survivors, and so on. Yeah, so survivalist fiction, I'd almost mm. call it. Yeah, it's like The Walking Dead with kids. Yeah, um, I, I think I think that's that's pretty dead on, actually. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, yeah, it's like The Road without the product placement. <laughs> What's the product placement to again? Oh, a refreshing can of Coca-Cola. Oh, yeah. Mm. Of course. Well, you can imagine that if anything's to survive the apocalypse, it would be a sturdy can of Coca-Cola. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, so how did you come across this book? Uh, well, there's not much of a story to it. In- invent some details. <laughs> um... I was on uh, a long, deserted, dusty road, backpack on my back, flask of water nearly empty. The crows were circling overhead. I saw what looked like a patch of grass. I thought maybe I could suck some dew from the leaves. When I looked down, there was a paperback book instead, and it was this book, and that's how I found it. Oh, great. Yeah. And uh, presumably you made it back to civilization. Yeah, and... yeah, and I did, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. All's well that ends well. <laughs> yep. Um, and presumably it's not, I mean, it's not a terribly old book, right? It only no, it's, came uh, out. It's Yeah, it came out in 2014, and it's um, it's not very well known either. It's, um, I think it's quite a small press, Um sort of thing which is surprising um perhaps considering uh, the popularity of post-apocalyptic films at least uh, and video games in i suppose over the last decade mm. obviously you referred to the road earlier also think of the fallout games uh, particularly mm-hmm. uh, and also i guess the similarity of 
series like The Hunger Games or The Maze Runner to the post-apocalyptic genre. Yeah. Which are effectively survivalist and have elements of the dystopian post-apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it definitely feels sort of quite timely that there would be a young adult. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's a few, but uh, young adult survivalist uh, post-apocalyptic novel. Yeah, especially with the increased uh, youth concern around climate change. Mm. Um, I, I've been a bit involved with Extinction Rebellion over the last year, um, but certainly you see with the school strikes on Fridays um, that the real push towards climate change activism is coming from the young. Mm. Yeah. No, n- not that this directly deals with... Uh, uh, with climate change, but... No, post-apocalyptic novels don't, and I don't know if that's kind of a hang-up of a, a nuclear age um, or a kind of disavowal of not wanting to think too much about the impending horrors of climate change. Mm. Um, so uh, what the threat is in um, in this book is um, a disease called Sitka AZ-13, but known as PEST. Which I think somewhat undersells it. Like, oh, it's just a pest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get pest control in, it's fine. Yeah. Um, it, um, it kills all adults and most children, but a few children have delayed onset pest, uh, which means that they have a few years of reprieve before succumbing to the full disease in their late teens. Yeah, originally, um, across the first few chapters... I thought it was that, bang, as soon as a kid hits 18, they're an adult, they get pest, mm. uh, or that the symptoms uh, suddenly kick in. Um, and I think that's sort of how it's written early on, uh, that there is this hard line in the sand. Um, but actually, later we discover that there are 16 and 17-year-olds who... Um, find uh, that the disease sets in fully uh, before they turn 18 and indeed some kids who turn 18 uh, become legal adults and still survive for a year or two afterwards Mm. Um, so I thought that was interesting because it seems to kind of dramatise this split between whether childhood uh, or the um, point at which a child becomes an adult is something that exists out there in the material world that it's it immutable law of nature um whether it is something more constructed and if so what does it mean for a child to become an adult and certainly what does it mean in a society where there are no longer laws Mm -hmm. yeah um our protagonist uh claire is 15 uh she was a cheerleader in the pre-pest world um and she's one of these survivors obviously um she um, watches her father and her stepmother die of pest and then sort of tries to survive on her own in a sort of holiday home outside of the city. Unnamed city, but um, assuming North American somewhere. Well, it's definitely not in Britain. I know that much because there are dogs with rabies and I always... Um rest secure in the knowledge that uh, British dogs don't have rabies. 
Which is good. It helps me uh, leave the house in the morning. That's good. Um, yeah. Uh. <laughs> I will note that there's a friendly companion dog uh, in this book who is perhaps the most terrifying aspect of it, uh, frankly. <laughs> like, uh, I know it's meant to be a good dog. It has a loyal mm, dog. but he, uh, He's uh, not... I, I wouldn't find... I mean... Yeah, maybe this maybe a gigantic and easily provoked dog is is a good companion in the post-apocalyptic world, but um, I don't find it very reassuring. Probably more useful than a cat, I'd say, in terms of say scavenging or fending off attackers. Mm. But uh, yeah, I, I think. I mean, I don't know. Like, have you ever brought a cat to the vets? <laughs> I like I'd have like a gigantic cat like I think that would be quite effective okay um, <laughs> anyway like like a panther like a panther or just like a really big house cat mm. yeah that would be my ideal post-apocalyptic companion I mean my default is toucan because I like toucans a lot but <laughs> apart from being able to swallow grapes in one go <laughs> I would keep the morale up wouldn't it yeah exactly keep the morale up and you know that that's what you've got to watch out for really is the morale you know because you may find that you've got enough water but you know there are rivers but what's the natural source for morale toucans it, well toucans <laughs> toucans yeah um, so Claire and her alarmingly big dog um, go, go scavenging in the nearby town where they meet 13 year old Jem who um, was at the same school as Claire and two younger girls Mary and Saray who Jem is looking after after he found them and um, the four of them band together and essentially look for a cure for pest um, before Claire gets it. Um, yeah, before she's bested by pest. Mm. Pested. <laughs> um, and they face hazards um, as well as finding sufficient food and water and shelter um, in the shape of the cured who are people who took up a supposed cure for pest um, but which changed their personalities and made them violent and unpredictable yeah they're kind of zany zombies mm. zombies that are a bit kookier yeah they, they talk I guess mm. um, like to varying degrees of comprehensibility yeah um. But yeah, they. Yeah, there just does seem to be quite a wide spectrum of. Um, of. Normal seemingness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, like, there are some who you'll approach and they'll just be like, oh, fiddledy foe, I'll eat your face in one go! <laughs> and. Then there are others who will be like, yeah, I'm not a pest. No, honestly, just looking out for myself. Oh, and then suddenly you find in the night they're chewing on your elbow mm. or something. Yeah. And yeah, and it turns out they were doing a very good job at pretending. Mm. 
And you go, oh, you pest. <laughs> oh, you darn pests. Um, yeah, and the, the, the gang's one clue in the search for a cure is a, a looping radio message, which is a, the one radio frequency that isn't static, and it's looping this message. I am the master of the situation. If you are alive, you are a child, and when you come of age, you will die of pest. This is what the pest rash means. But I can cure you. Come to me, north of Hearn Wood, near Route 180. North of Hearn Wood, near Route 180. I am the only adult left. Um, and probably because he's called, all he's known as is master, or master of the situation, self-proclaimed. I pictured him as the demon headmaster. Um, the the uh, text of this podcast, or John Major, alternatively John Major. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as we started with the Demon Headmaster, everything must return to the Demon Headmaster. Um, everything returns to the yeah. source. <laughs> um, and so the master is the other, the other part of the novel, and we're sort of split between the group of children and their their journeys and trials and <laughs> I, I notice you were careful not to call him the other protagonist yeah <laughs> I, I tried that and then I thought no that's it's too wrong <laughs> other relatable human guy <laughs> spoiler he's not a relatable human guy um, no as people who call themselves the master so seldom are <laughs> Um, and yeah, but we see his perspective as he enacts his plan to uh, collect the surviving children for his own unsavoury desires. Which are pretty unsavoury, let me tell you. Uh, yeah, pretty pretty unsavoury. So, um, you're saying that you don't think this is horror? Okay, I generally don't see the survivalist or post-apocalyptic genre as horror mm. so if we think of say famous post-apocalyptic films um like the mad max films mm-hmm. for instance uh, i think we'd consider those action films foremost if we're thinking of a boy and his dog uh maybe um a sort of darkly comic misogynist sci-fi um but not really a horror and i think the reason for that is because generally the protagonists of survivalist films or stories are too equipped and capable. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're not equipped and capable, you've probably died off in the early stages, like I would well, do. Oh, yeah. I mean... So... N- oh, no, I, I, I quite firmly believe that I would be a miscellaneous corpse littering the road. Um, while the capable people um, made bandages out of elastic bands or whatever they do. And ferns. Ferns, ferns and elastic bands. Um, yeah, bracken. They'd kick my corpse aside and be like, oh, oh dear, they didn't know how to do this. <laughs> do those adult things. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh... Bet they had a podcast, but that's all they knew how to do. <laughs> Anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I think maybe so. Okay, 
Not so much with the Box of Delights, but with most of the children's texts we've looked at so far, protagonists, while plucky, are often beset by anxiety and worry or, um, you know, generally... I just don't think the kids in this struggle enough, really. And maybe that just makes me an awful sadist. <laughs> but, um, like, things go pretty well. Like, every time something seems to go very badly wrong, generally it picks up oh, picks up pretty fast. Like, mm. I, I, I guess it's also that the survival genre necessitates mission-based plotting. So, yes, there's the encroachment of chaos, mm. right, in the form of pest or whatever nasty apocalyptic deus ex machina you need um but generally the characters are very focused on how they're going to solve this situation what they're going to do about it like they have strategies and action plans in place and yes sometimes there'll be some hiccups along the road but generally they'll know what they're doing or what they're aiming mm. for um Whereas I think, for me, in horror, the chaos needs to kind of seep into the psychology of the characters more, and there needs to be a sense of things spiralling out of control. Mm. Whereas I guess with a post-apocalyptic text, the spiralling out of control's already happened. Yep. You know, that's, that's been and gone. So we kind of post-horror, in a sense... Um, it's like I remember watching Dawn of the Dead, the original, um, with my old housemate Stu, um, which I was quite fond of as a teenager, and I played it to him, and he said, yeah, it was good, but it wasn't a horror film. And at, at the time I was confused, because it was it's zombies, and, you know, that, so it's a horror film. But he said, yeah, but it's more of an action film, because the characters are constantly talking about how they're securing the base, and, you know, how they're getting from A to B from this hold out to this gun cache mm. and then what they're going to do when they're there and that it tends to be very much based around their actions and what they're going to do rather than the psychology so much yeah. um so yeah that that's that's my case for it not being hard uh, yeah i mean these are remarkably um capable children <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> they uh they know how to, um, they like do like basic medical things and like boil water, dig toilets, um, make weapons. Uh, yeah. All the things that like our parents' generation or maybe that the generation before them did, but you know, we don't really really need, need to do those things so, mm. so they, they do feel like you do kind of feel like they will probably be okay <laughs> yeah there's there is peril but but you feel like they're, they're gonna deal with yeah. it <laughs> i think i think um yeah i think that's a that's is a good case it doesn't but on the other hand it does hit on a lot of horror tropes <laughs> Um, over the course of the novel. Okay, this is alphabetically. Um, so we have blood drinking, body horror, cannibalism, child murder, creepy dolls, cults, disfigurement, decaying corpses, 
eugenics, feral children, mass suicide, paedophilia, psychopathy, serial killers, um, and teenage pregnancy. Maybe other people aren't as scared of pregnancy as I am, so... But, yeah. So, you know, it's quite a list. Yeah, that is a fair point. Um, I suppose the maison scène of... <laughs> Sorry, I've been lecturing all afternoon. Um, of the book is pretty creepy and horror-themed. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess if you had different characters thrown into this environment, I'd feel it was more of a mm. horror. Um, I mean, occasionally you do encounter children who have, you know, met worse fates, um, or, you know, I, spoiler warning, not all the kids survive, um, but the kids that are our protagonists are a pretty hardy bunch. Mm. Um, it's also, I mean, it moves into some slightly supernatural areas, and I don't think that you need something to be supernatural to be a horror. Mm. You know, slasher films are generally regarded as horror films, and they often don't have a supernatural mm. element. Um, but that said, I feel like I would have... I mean, this is personal preference, and I could see why you wouldn't insert this in a post-apocalyptic genre piece, mm -hmm. but I guess I wanted a few more supernatural flourishes. Mm -hmm. Like, there was a bit where Claire talks about she imagines seeing the pest in its embodied form, mm -hmm. and I was very up for seeing <laughs> that. You know, I wanted a good conversation with the pest, mm -hmm. even even in a dream sequence. Um and this might be partly because I've been playing the alpha of Pathologic 2, um, the plague simulator by Russian game studio Ice Pick Lodge. Mm -hmm. And in that, um, this Russian step town from about 1910 is beset by the sand plague. And um, you do talk with an embodied form of the sand plague, which looks a bit like... Um, kind of cross between a plague doctor and a carrion crow, oh, I that, suppose. Oh, that's what I would imagine it looked like. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, I, yeah, I guess I kind of wanted more of that kind of thing, perhaps. Hmm. Um. I guess also I didn't fundamentally find it scary. Uh, did you? Um... I found the the character of the master pretty creepy. He's a creepy guy. Um, and I thought there was quite a good sense of built-up dread surrounding him. In that... That's, that's we see true. We the, the, uh, the various uh, horrible things he's up to, but um, we know that, the, that our that our plucky band of survivors are making their way to him. Um, yes. Did he want to read? Um, I mean, you mentioned the blood drinking. <laughs> yeah, I'll just and, uh, explain a little bit more about the master. Okay. Um, so he's... Um, we're very, very thoroughly in the devious adult authority figures um, area of children's horror. Um, there's a, 
for one thing, he claims that he's the, the only adult left. Um, although it, it's, it's up for debate whether he is any more sane than any of the cured. Um, but by positioning himself in this way that the children in the book are, are uniquely at his mercy, um, both in the, in the fact that in the short term, there's there them are traumatized and hungry and frightened but also in the long term he's promising a cure for pest um that they will die of if if they don't find it um but this is this is where we came to my bold claim of the week the claim of the week um <laughs> the master claims that drinking the blood of blue-eyed children uh, will keep him alive because of the recessive gene. Hmm. <laughs> um, and it's, it's unclear how much he himself believes this, um, but at times he does seem to. Um, but as one of the characters says, otherwise... Um, the blue-eyed blood is a cure stuff is nonsense he just likes killing blue-eyed children but uh yeah (laughs) i mean he's basically coded as being unsavory in all the various ways that an adult might be unsavory towards children i suppose yes and it doesn't explicitly it, it doesn't um it doesn't move into the mm. kind of sexual no, abuse, but, it, but this is always lingering unpleasantly uh, yes. in the background, I'd say. Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll read the extract where he, he drinks a child's blood. Um. <laughs> Good for you. Because <laughs> that's what we like here on this podcast. Um. <laughs> Somewhere behind the mansion, the master could hear the chugging of the generator. The oven was at just the right temperature, and Britta put in the cake. Eliza cut vegetables. A child named Dante was helping her. The master was watching her handle the knife when it skittered off the potato she was holding and embedded itself deep in her hand. Eliza made no sound. She pulled the knife out, and the blood began to flow freely down her arm in a spiral of red against milk-white. Put cold water on it, said Britta. She moved quickly, a dishcloth in her hand, but the master got to Eliza first. What he felt was not an irresistible urge, but the workings of cold calculation. The blood streaming out of Eliza's hand was enough to keep Pest at bay for six months, maybe more. The master was free of sick AZ-13. Oh yes, but as long as the disease is in the world, he needed, what to call it, boosters. Britta was the only one that the master trusted with knowledge about the boosters. Boosters meant ingesting some blood from the right little girl. Boosters were part one of the process that left him happy and healthy. Part two was purely recreational. Britta didn't need need know about that. He cherished her ignorance. Eliza bled. The master caught Britta's eye. He suddenly turned away and pinned Eliza to the wall. Britta and Doug looked on as he bent down and licked the blood off her arm, smoothing his tongue right up into the wound. Dante had stopped chopping vegetables and he looked horrified, but Doug, without saying a word, went and stood against the door so none of the others could come in. 
Eliza is crying, but she did not scream. Uh, for clarification, we do not like this on that podcast. <laughs> I mean, no, I don't like the taste of blood anyway. Um, very irony. Yeah. Um, so, so from that extract, he seems to be persuading himself that he that this is uh, a genuine cure. Um. I mean, it's tricky, right? Because obviously, like his beliefs seem founded on like batshit magic race science, mm. basically. Yet the world seemingly is not totally immune to magic, perhaps, in an early modern sense. So one thing I found interesting to discover is that the author is a Shakespeare mm-hmm. academic. Um, and there seems to be a sense in the book that the pest has kind of returned civilization to the early modern period and that things that made sense or had value or worked for people in the early modern period start to work again now Mm -hmm. um so one instance of this is dreams uh dreams in the book um tend to take the form of prophecy and there's actually some discussion in the dialogue that uh now that pest has happened, dreams mean something again. Mm. I thought this was really interesting, uh, the idea that early modern belief systems um, were perhaps suited to a certain kind of um, hard-knock agrarian survivalism, um, and that this sort of belief in them made them true, in a sense. Um mm. Shall we give a spoiler warning for um, what eventually mm-hmm, does mm-hmm. cure pest? Okay, so spoilers. So skip ahead about two minutes. Uh, it's leeches. <laughs> leeches uh, drain the bad blood and cure the affected kids of pest. Uh, I thought that was really interesting uh, because, yeah, it reflects a kind of early modern belief that suddenly makes sense and it yeah. works <laughs> oh. I did wonder if there was a certain I mean I think this is at play with so like my brother for instance you know he irritatingly claims that you know he's quite glad about the climate change and the coming apocalypse because he's like yeah no it'll be good because returning you know returning to you know the hard Hard graft, you know, the survival out, you know, where men were men, I guess. <laughs> and it's really, he's a, he's a pretty lazy person, is <laughs> it's, it's my brother. Realistically, he doesn't want to have to hunt his own food and skin hmm. animals. He wants to be playing on his Xbox. <laughs> but I, I find it interesting that often there does seem to be a perverse strain of wish fulfillment at the heart of post-apocalyptic mm. stories, you know. Um, people really enjoy playing Fallout. Um, I don't know if this is a kind of return to a less mediated world, where you've got a very direct relationship with your surroundings and the objects mm. you use. 
you know, everything is purposeful, everything is in its right place, uh, you know, you know where you are with a, a bit of flint in your hand and uh, and a fire out of some twigs, uh, whereas, you know, who knows how computers work? Mm. But I do think that, you know, people obviously tend to assume that they're going to be the one well, yeah. who survives, uh, <laughs> rather. <laughs> um, yeah. Um. I don't know. It it sounds it sounds awful. I, I'd hate to be a post-apocalyptic survivor. Oh yeah, yeah same here. And I think I think this kind of perverse um, fetishization of it does really come from a place of privilege, to be mm. honest. Because the fact is that climate change is already affecting the poorest yeah. regions of the globe um, and causing mass migration. Um, so yeah, I find it. I don't know. I, I don't. I'm not saying that's necessarily mm. in play in the book, um, but there is a hint of uh, the world returning to a kind of prelapsarian state, uh-huh. basically. <laughs> like, Jem has a line of dialogue, uh, which I thought was quite nice, um, where he says, he mentions that you see a lot of deer around, and he says, oh, maybe this is our chance to start over and, you know, this time we'll actually respect uh-huh. the natural world. Um, mm. But, yeah, part of me feels like this kind of narrative's quite dangerous because I think there's an increasing awareness that, you know, the apocalypse isn't going to just happen overnight. It's unlikely that we are going to have this moment where suddenly everything's terrible but we can start again. Uh, rather, it's a very slow uh, process by which lots of different factors slowly get worse and humans slowly yeah. try I mean, to if adapt. If you actually want a more realistic and consequently horrific take on post-apocalyptic um, <laughs> fiction, as uh, Octavia Butler, the parable of the sower and the parable of the talents, um, which is just... Uh, devastatingly brutal <laughs> but um, I mean it's amazing but but in there are they four kids um, I can't remember or the, teens the protagonist a teen, is a a teens um, well start as t- uh, she starts as a teenager anyway um, but okay you know they do in that they do try and make a, a you know a new sort of religious self-sufficient community you know in the sort of chaos of what's happened um but it doesn't go smoothly let's say (laughs) (laughs) uh it's like it's like those buckyball communes in the 60s in the deserts of california it sounded great but then remember there was an adam curtis documentary and you know he's pretty libertarian so i i try to take him with a bit of a mm. pinch of salt but uh the people interviewed suggested that it didn't really work out that well and uh actually you got lots of power abuses and other unpleasantness and sadly despite the utopian mm-hmm. desires of those involved it was pretty crappy yeah and i think possibly what is maybe a little goes a little unrealistically smoothly in in this novel is how immediately uh, harmoniously that the children get along. 
Yeah, because teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, teens, if you're listening. I'm sure you're lovely, teenage (laughs) listeners. Um, But a lot of teenagers aren't great, Um. (laughs) as I'm sure you know. And yeah, these are all thoroughly good kids, basically. Um, And not just good, but also, I mean, you know, they're having to put up with just pooing Mm. in a ditch. You know, like, and they're still generally pretty decent to mm. one another, really. And I think this was, for me, something of an issue that I guess the horror I tend to like, and again, I think this is sort of personal taste, um, there's always the threat of the protagonist um I don't want to say necessarily succumbing to evil, but perhaps recognising certain weaknesses in themselves or that good and evil aren't so easily Mm. demarcated um, that it's less about evil than it is about chaos, perhaps, um, and things going wrong. Whereas one thing that frustrated me about this book is that when we have a character who seemingly is a human and um, not one of the cured um, who does something evil, it's revealed that they are actually cured and thus are other to human that the reason for their evil behaviour is uh, basically because of this, um, the side effects mm. of this, this ineffective cure. Uh, so I was thinking of the character of yes. uh, Darian who um, they invite into their their shelter. Um, see, he says he, you know, he's just a, another another child like them, um, but who uh, makes off in the morning with uh, their pig and um, Miri, the youngest girl, um, and who they they cut they find later um around a campfire with the the butchered pig and mary tied up and it's really quite disturbing <laughs> it's the part of the book i found um, most disturbing um because it doesn't sort of say what his intent is but various bad things are insinuated um and yeah he's sort of I guess, positioned as a corrupted child figure. Uh, he might have turned 18. Um, so there's this sort of anxiety about the uh, the innocent childhood having fallen away to reveal a kind of corrupted mm-hmm. adulthood. Um, um, but yeah, he is... Then they find the patch behind his, behind his neck and realise that he was a cured all along, which means we don't... We don't have the, the sort of... The thing, like sort of in The Walking Dead, or for example, you know, at first the threats are are the Walking Dead, <laughs> are the undead, and then after a while, other humans are much become much more dangerous. They they work out how to deal with the zombies, but other humans are evil and unpredictable in ways that they are much more threatening to them. Um, but we don't really have any. Um, any sort of narrative like that in this book? No, I mean, to be fair, that goes right back to Night mm. of the Living Dead um, from the 1960s. So you could say that at this point uh-huh. it's a bit of a cliche and perhaps um, 
the author was deliberately resisting this um, by by not having it that ah oh, it was the humans <laughs> who were evil yeah. all along. Yeah, I think I, I I just wish that the evil hadn't been quite so clearly demarcated. Which is not to say that sometimes sometimes there are people who do thoroughly evil things. Um, it's not that I believe, you know, I'm not saying, oh, everyone's fallible, everyone's just as bad, we're all as bad as the master, really. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I, you know I don't believe that. But um, I did find the kids a little bit too perfect mm-hmm. for me, yeah. I think. <laughs> but again, personal taste and, you know, just because... You know, I like my morally conflicted characters doesn't mean that every teenage reader mm-hmm. necessarily does. Um, do you have a texture of the week? Better, do, do I have any <laughs> objects with which to make appropriate okay. texture of the week sounds is, is, is the question. Um, I, I'll make a sort of slurping, moaning, post-apocalyptic sounds. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's probably horrible. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, Yes, I do, actually. And it's quite a nice little texture. It's just... uh, one image in the book mm. that I really liked, um, and I think it's, me- it's meant to be a bit creepy, um, but there's a description of butterflies, like butterflies pinned mm. in a display case, and the pins are described as looking like drops of mercury that have fallen onto mm. the butterflies. I thought that was just a really... I mean, I, the texture of mercury is obviously mm-hmm. endlessly fascinating. And, yeah, I, a very vivid image, mm. I thought. I have also have a, a similarly quite a, a nice a nice texture. Um, well, I have a nice okay. one and a nasty one. Okay, yes, <laughs> yes. But my nice texture is, um, at the beginning, Claire has a little, um, little birdie um, called Chuppy. And... Um, and says she had taken Jane Eyre and she also took Juppy, who liked to peck at the margins of the book, leaving behind holes that seemed full of meaning. Oh, yeah. that is rather lovely. Um, I, I do, yeah, I don't think there's lots. Um, thing I really like about this book, I think, is the there's lots of nice images and little little turns of phrase. Um, yeah, that's true, and I think. You know, sometimes the kids don't quite mm. talk like kids, perhaps, but I do like some of the uh, little phrases they come up with. Um, there's quite a few moments where the kids use just slightly the wrong word or um, invent a word. Um, yeah, or there's misunderstandings, mm. which were quite charming. Um, do you want to hear my my horrible texture? Yeah, <laughs> I probably do. Come um, then. Because <laughs> we haven't actually talked about any of the the body horror surrounding the past, but um, they um, oh yeah, they do. Uh, there's a, they, yeah, so it's it's not very nice, and you get blisters that turn into pustules that 
spread all over their face. Um, we have a description of uh, one of the cured. It's uh, the woman's face looked like someone had put a thumb down and smeared it. <laughs> it reminded me a little bit of um, the Charles Burns graphic novel, mm. uh, Black Hole. Um, I can't Have you read that yes, one? Yes, we read it together in um, in in Borders in York. Oh yeah, one of the many many comics we read in Borders before it closed down because people were reading <laughs> reading books in Borders rather than buying them. Yes. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's how you fight the capitalist machine. <laughs> Use your local bookstop as a library. <laughs> but yeah, like I remember that the uh, disease in Black Hole kind of creates, I guess. I suppose facial mutations, mm. you'd say. I mean, you could argue that this borders into a kind of um, creating horror out of disfigurement. Somehow I think it manages to skirt that, but I'm not quite sure mm. why. I guess, you know, the, the, the people never feel dehumanised because of these changes, I suppose. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think there is a moment where they come across a cured whose face is all sort of swollen and and, um, and one of the little girls says, oh, it's a thing. And they say... Um, yeah. Yeah, hmm, I don't know. Um, I think, yeah, it's not, a, it's not a massive part of it, though. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky, you know, I think whether... You know, can does body horror always risk being ableist? Mm. You know, because it tends to play into anxieties around the body, and sometimes these may be anxieties that able-bodied people have, mm. and often it will be about bodies changing in such a way that is deemed undesirable. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know if it's sort of inherently. Not not Tetsu Iron Man though. No, not Tetsu Iron Man, which is obviously very progressive and uh, sort of joyously yeah. queer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're a kid, you probably can't watch Tetsu Iron Man. But if you're not and haven't, yeah. watch it. It's freaking yeah, yeah. glorious. <laughs> yeah. Um. Oh, do you, do you have anything else to add? No, I mean, I'm aware that I might have sounded a bit down on the book um, overall, and I think that's just, it's not my kind of thing. Um, I do think it has stretches of quite evocative and engaging writing. Mm. And, you know, I certainly kept turning the pages, so I wasn't, I was interested in how it was going to turn out, Um I think I'm just not very keen on the post-apocalyptic <laughs> genre, um, to be honest. Or I prefer it really within the medium of video games. Mm. You know, I kind of want to be the per- yeah. I want to be the one trying, generally not very well, to survive um, and collecting resources. Um, but I think if if you're into that genre and it's something you enjoy. Um, then I, I'd recommend it. Hmm. How about you? Yeah, I um, 
I, I I did enjoy it. Um, I think this is actually the second time I've read it, um, and um, I think on on a on a reread, I was I was reading more carefully, so I sort of noticed a few things that I was a bit like hmm about. But I still um, I think it's I think it's really well written and um, interesting. Um, mostly like yeah, I really like I like the writing, I like the the details and the the images that she do, comes up with. And certainly has a very memorable villain in the in the figure of the master. Oh uh, yes. Who's very uh, very unambiguously yeah. evil. <laughs> we didn't actually um we sort of touched on the sort of eugenics aspect but didn't actually discuss that. Um Yeah, I mean to be fair, I think the book somewhat sketches hmm. over it. It's suddenly referred to. Um in a, in a sense, the master's kind of uh, in the archetype of evil Nazi scientist, basically. Yeah, um, it's it's not it's not explicitly referred to, but he talks about wanting to find blue-eyed children and uh, mate them. That's that sounds horrible. I'm sorry, but that, that yeah, breed breed them, mm. make more blue-eyed children. You know, which is a fairly unambiguously uh, <laughs> Nazi, Nazi thing to do. Ten- tinted thing, yes. Um, but not. But it, it's it's not um, it's not it's not developed very very far in that direction. No, which I, I don't think it could mm. be really. I mean. This is a young yeah, adult yeah. book, <laughs> essentially. So, um, yeah, understandably, I guess uh, it circles those issues. Um, yeah. Mm. Um. I'm going to try to think of a mm. sign-off. Um, do you, did you want to do the credits? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um. And, I mean, if you do the credit, you could do it quite slowly. Um. Um, our theme tune is by Maki Yamazaki. Our outro is by Joe Kelly. Our artwork is by Letty Wilson. You can contact us on Twitter at, at stillscaredpod. Or email us at stillscaredpodcast at gmail.com. You can even rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, please, please do that. Actually, that would be yeah, that'd be that'd be nice. Mm. Um, you don't have to, but you know. Um, do you have a signer for us, Adam? Um, I yeah, I I I, I guess um, sleep well, creepy kids. Um, n- neither pest nor master be. <laughs> Goes with the kind of uh, early modern old English. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Sallow dreams, creepy kids. Neither pest nor master (laughs) bee. See you next time. (laughs) Bye. Bye.